so really, royal succession, marriage, political elites, the political system in general, really all of those questions, which are really at the center of the discourse right now that I'm involved in, is really a question of power. So this is something that is actually still very much a question in modern Russia today. And that is, what is the nature of, what you might say, executive power, royal power, if you like, in Russian history, going back as far as you like? Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Russell Martin to the podcast to talk about the state of scholarship on early modern Russia, autocracy, marriage, and power, and the intellectual life of the great historian of Russia, Edward Keenan. Russell Martin is a professor of history at Westminster College, focusing on autocracy, marriage, power, and the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He is the author of many books and articles. His most recent book is A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. In the interview, Russell mentioned several works by Russian historians, if you're interested in checking them out, I've included links to them on the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org. Here's Russell Martin. So I thought we'd start by having you answer a very broad question and kind of lay out what historians are doing in early modern Russia. And the scholarship for early modern Russia is really rich and diverse. But over the last couple of decades, there's been less and less uh, scholars, at least in the United, at least young scholars in the United States, working in this field, uh, talk about the state of scholarship in early modern Russia, inside and outside Russia, and what are some of the main issues scholars are tackling. Well, you uh, you ask a pretty broad first question, but it's right to the heart of the problem, really, which is that both in the United States and elsewhere in the West, and even in Russia, the field of early modern Russian studies and just early Slavic studies in general is being pinched right now. It's under a lot of stress. On one hand, it makes no sense that the field is experiencing these problems because never have the documents, the, the archival material, been more accessible to us. The archives are, for us, fairly open. There's very little political politics attached to, to any of this work that we do, at least directly. And uh, of course, there are ancillary tide poles that you bump into sometimes. The Ukrainian question comes up. Relations with Tatars come up. So our work can bump into landmines from time to time. But generally speaking, we can get into the archives. We can look at the material we want to. It's given to us unstintingly by the archivists at the major archives that we work in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and some of the regional places that we, we visit. So on one hand, these should be halcyonic times for the field of early modern Russian history, but in fact, it's not. There are fewer jobs in the last 30 years going to early modern Russian historians. Even when you have larger universities that have more than one Russianist, which is a, already a de declining number, you have them going to modernists. In fact, if you look at the ads uh, for the jobs, they, they basically say from Peter the Great up or from, from 19th century to 20th century, post-Soviet even, not even giving people like us a shot at it. So it's really kind of scary and really very short-sighted because I, I would point out that very few of 
our best political thinkers right now and policymakers have very good advice when it comes to, for example, Ukraine, which is impossible to understand without thinking about the Kievan and early modern past. It's a relationship with Poland and Lithuania. It's Kievan past, the Mongols, and so on. And of course, even inter- interactions with Muscovy. So our government's policies in, in Ukraine have been really crippled, I think. Just self-evidently crippled by by not having people uh, who know the period really well, who are willing to uh, offer advice. The, the problem is exists in Russia, too. So even though we can shake our finger at what's going on in the American academic establishment when it comes to Eastern Europe. There are fewer and fewer students attracted to the early period in in Russia as well. I'm thinking of some fine institutions in Russia, like the Archivni Institute of the Academy of Sciences, which used to be the place to go and study or source studies, the history of the documents themselves, which is really at the core of what we do as pre-modern historians. We really are as much specialists in handwriting, paleography, paper, ink, as we are in the events of the period. And even there, friends of mine, colleagues tell me that, uh, you know, the, the enrollments are down. And sometimes even some of the students are as strong as they once were. So uh, crisis may be too strong a word, but there is a real problem in in our in our neck of the woods. And, you know, it's, it's a problem that's only going to get worse because, frankly, it's it's one of these self-perpetuating things, if you don't have people getting the jobs who themselves, the modernists, but themselves were trained uh, in the earlier period, they're not going to be able to train or not even be inclined to want to train their own graduate students in the early period, which means that we're going to have in just a very short time a a complete desert of knowledge, uh, just a completely void, uh, voided place of of, uh, of knowledge in, in, in Eastern European studies and Russian studies. And, and that's really very, very sad. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really surprised because at, in my, my time at, in graduate school at UCLA, for example, early modern European history was actually quite vibrant. And so how do you explain the disinterest in this period amongst, you know, Russian historians? Well, you're right. The early, the early modern period is just, I would say, thriving uh, when it comes to the West. Early modern France, Habsburg Empire, uh, Tudor Stuart England. These are all fields that are still doing really well and glad because we early modern Russianists read that stuff too all the time. We take we take cues from what they do all the time. But, you know, even Western medieval stuff, so basically 9th through 14th century, 12th century in the medieval West is in something of a decline too. Uh, I uh, happened to, to bump into the fellow that I read with when I was a graduate student and uh, he and I had a chat about now that he's retired, what he's doing to help preserve the field. And I said, what do you mean preserve the field? And, and his view was, well, you know, there are more and more universities even surprisingly good ones that are eliminating their medieval studies programs or just not hiring uh, medievalists. And so there's a general problem of presentism uh, out there. And I think in the case of Russia, it's pretty acute. Now, why? One might say, well, because of the general interest in the last 50 years uh, among students. So enrollments drive a lot of this. But frankly, you know, when you're, look, when you're a graduate student and you're scanning around for something to devote your life to, one of the things you keep your eye on is where the grant money is. And frankly, that has dried up when it comes to Russia in general, and in particular when it comes to things before, you know, 1970. So there's a, it's a complicated 
perfect storm of reasons that the field is in decline. And it's very sad because it's ill-timed and, and we're suffering because of it. Even, as I say, on the level of modern day policymakers who need still to consider Russia's history. You know, one of the great things about, uh, one of the great debates about Russian history is continuity. Is, is Russian history one thing or is there different periods of Russia? What, what's common with the past and what's, what's new to the Soviet period or so, so post-Soviet period? And if at all, and I think it does, if at all that argument of continuity has any validity, then we better study the whole length of it. And to the extent we're not doing that is um, is very sad and also dangerous. It's actually interesting because if you look at how people, a lot of people understand, say, modern Russian politics right now, present day Russian politics in terms of Putin and his circle, it employs a lot of terminology that reflects directly back to the early modern period. Issues of clans, you get, you know, people use boyars as as kind of synonyms for the elite around him. And I, I think I completely agree with you that to throw around these terms and use them even in for as a form of analysis and not really be developing the history of the early modern history where these are originate uh, it is really dangerous yeah it's it's dangerous and just kind of um, unlearned to to think that we can uh, understand for example the british empire in the 19th century without understanding uh elizabethan times without understanding Protest the protestant reformation in in england uh, without understanding social and economic problems in the 17th century that laid the, the groundwork for the way peasants in England lived and how they produced. You can do it. It's being done all the time. The scholarship is out there. It's very good on a certain level, but it also sometimes is patently uninformed. And you can you can see that when you dig deep into the notes of, a, of a, even a very good work on, on the period. So, you know, I, I think... We do harm to ourselves and to our field when we don't look far enough back. I mean, we are historians after all. Well, let's talk about your own work and your own research interests. Now, much of your work centers around issues of royal succession and marriage and how these reflect the elite politics of early modern Russia. How do these things shed light on the Russian political system in pre-Petrine Russia? Right. So really, royal succession, marriage, political elites the political system in general, really all of those questions, which are really at the center of the discourse right now that I'm involved in, is really a question of power. So, and again, going back to your first question about the relevancy of the early modern uh, field, this is something that is actually still very much a question in modern Russia today. And that is, what is the nature of, well, you might say, executive power, royal power, if you like, in Russian history, going back as far as you like? I tend to be a part of the group that looks at this in a more nuanced way, uh, a more anthropological way. So there's basically been sort of two overarching views. One that sort of takes very seriously the idea of autocracy and that the, the ruler, whether that be a grand prince or the tsar or the emperor, and then frankly later the party, were what was an autocratic power with un, essentially unrestricted access to the resources of the state and the manpower? Or was this a much more nuanced oligarchical structure where the grand prince, the tsar, the emperor existed in a much more complex relationship with his own or her own elites, based, at least in the 17th and 16th, 16th and 17th centuries, on kinship marriage. So when I study 
marriage, I'm really looking at royal succession. When I look at royal succession, I'm really looking at power. All of these things really come together. What the rest of my own work centers on is the relationship between the dynasty as a as an institution, as a, the dynasty as a lens for us to understand the question of power. And when when talking about the power, uh, the dynasty, what I mean is the family. Who is it related to? Who is it descended from? Who are they married to? What are the relationships between the various branches of the family? So collaterals versus the main trunk of the dynasty and so on. These are pretty important questions because they really, they, they throw light on the nature of the, the dynasty, which by the way is the concept of dynasty is, is, is appearing now in the literature or something that people, early modernists, particularly in the West, are thinking about. And it's kind of fun to have been doing this for the last 20 years. And I'm looking around saying, well, you know, Glad you're catching Where up. Where you been? <laughs> That's right. Uh, but when you're looking at the question of the dynasty, you're really looking at the question of power, which is to say you're looking at this, this larger historiographical debate. Was power oligarchical or was it autocratic? I come down very strongly, I guess, on the side of uh, the, the oligarchical argument because I do think that that the grand princes and czars existed in a system that rested on marriage, particularly their own, but not just their own, uh, the marriages of the boyars among themselves as well. So this is a system, a court, which had factions which were formed large, or formed and reinforced by kinship ties um, and marriage ties, which then also branched out into pa patronage and clientage. And these factions then vied with each other for access to, to the Tsar, who actually did not have many of the last words, as, as in my own research on the bride show and marriage politics has shown, the grand prince or Tsar actually picked his bride in a rather collaborative way, uh, not, not on his own. So I'm very interested in the whole problem of the nature of power. And this is, of course, a question that we ask when it comes to the 1930s. Stalin is a question we ask Gorbachev, and we're asking today about Putin. It's a it's a constant concern for Russianness, and I'm just asking it at a very early moment. But it's an important moment because, as you suggested before, the way that problem of power was asked and answered in Russian history over time really does set a mold for the way things would develop later on. Let me ask you, so, and, and you talk about this in some of your work with, with this, I'll ask you about succession laws in a bit, but how much control did the Tsar have in regulating marriages between different branches of the fam of the, first the royal family, but also his his the boyars around him. The marriages of members of his own family were entirely governed by not the Tsar, I would insist, but by the the Tsar and his closest kin, boyars who were in the innermost, innermost circle at the court, who were also at the same time as, as the Tsar's in law. So when you look at the marriage texts that I study, in fact, I'm writing a book on the marriage ceremonies itself, its meaning and rituals. The text says, The verb is which means basically ordered or commanded his cousin or his nephew or his brother to, to marry this person. So the text would give the impression that the collateral junior member of the dynasty really didn't choose their own spouse, which is probably true. But I would have changed the verb not to a singular, but to a plural, right? Because it's not just the Tsar who's doing this, but the Tsar in consultation with his most closest 
kin and advisors who were his boy or in-laws. Now, now you mentioned The Bright Show, and you have written a book on The Bright Show. And, and throughout the 16th and 17th century, women are assembled in these bright shows for the Tsar to ultimately pick a bride. But as you show, the, the process of this is, is very complicated. Talk about The Bright Show, its history and its significance in early modern Russia. Well, thank you for the plug. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, The Bright Show is one of these things, one of these um, rituals court events that gets mentioned in lots of texts uh, in a passing way. But no one's ever sort of stopped and said, hey, wait a minute, what is that again? And, and how did that work? So the book is basically to sort of say, hey, wait a minute and take a look at this. So the, the bride show appears on the scene for the first time that I can document in 1505, which I do think is the first time it ever that was used. And that was by Vasily III, Grand Prince Vasily III, and his first wife, who was a Saborva. So the question is, where does this come from and, and why do they do it? So the bride show actually has a lot of iterations in other societies. The Chinese used it, uh, the Carolingians used it, and the Byzantines used it. And I believe I can strongly suggest that the Muscovites picked up the idea of the bride show from itinerant Greeks who were popping in Moscow right after the fall of Constantinople. And uh, in fact, we have a foreigner's account that suggests exactly that. The question is, why would why would the Muscovites want to borrow it in the first place? We, if if we can prove it was borrowed, and I think we can, why borrow it? And there, I think the answer is that two things were happening. The first is, in previous generations, Muscovy was merely one of a whole range of principalities in northeastern Rus, all ruled by different branches of the Rurikovich dynasty. There was Tver, there was Nizhny Novgorod, there was Morom, there was uh, Suzdal, and so on. And the brides of Muscovite grand princes came from those uh, collateral branches of the larger dynasty. So they're distant cousins in a way. But certainly by the turn of the 16th century, Muscovy had more or less won. The gathering of Rus, as it's called, had, had been completed, had been successful. And so there really weren't any of these princes anymore to, to marry into. They had all been sort of absorbed into the Muscovite aristocracy. They were, they were now Muscovites. Secondly, marriages to foreigners were becoming problematical because of, of, of religious differences, frankly. The Russians tend to be Orthodox and uh, everyone else tends not to be. And that poses a lot of uh, complicated problems, both for arranging marriages and for actually doing the rituals themselves that, that everyone will agree will you know, accomplish the marriage. So the, the Muscovites had a really good reason to start rethinking their marriage policies. And, and then in 1495, the daughter of Ivan III, Vasily III's sister, goes off and marries the Grand Duke of Poland and Lithuania, the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania. His name was Alexander. And this was such a fabulous failure and an expensive failure that it really put a sour taste in the Muscovites' mouths about foreign marriages. And so when the idea of marrying Vasily III came up, the question was, who do we marry him to? Well, there's no Muscovite princes. There's no Rus princes to pick from. They're, we don't want to go abroad because that's too expensive and too complicated. And then a Greek, a guy named Yuri Trakhanyotov, stands up and says, I've got an idea. And <laughs> almost literally that. And the first bride show happens and he picks his first bride. Now, that marriage isn't all that successful, frankly. He doesn't have any children from it. And he sends her away to a monastery years later. But that custom will live on, and every ruler afterwards, with one or two exceptions, will use the bride show. And I think even the first marriage of Peter the Great was formally 
uh, arranged with the bride show, although in that case, uh, there was a lot of po- politicking going around behind the scenes. So this ritual is actually not just a footnote, something that's, that's a passing thing to note in a, in a textbook. It's actually really quite an important ritual at court because around it, all the boyars who are in the center of politics are going to manipulate who gets to be in the lineup of potential brides. And uh, a whole industry develops around that, that that frankly is pretty well documented in the sources, even though those sources haven't really been looked at by most historians. And what I try to do is to show how this was a rigged spectacle. It's it's interesting. It's rigged one way in the 16th century. And it's rigged a different way in the 17th century. It's rigged throughout, though. But the political system, of course, evolves over those two two centuries until, of course, the ritual is, is abolished, is obsolete. But uh, in the meantime, it becomes a very important organizing principle because everyone knows that there will be a bride show. Everyone knows that all the politicking for picking a bride is going to have to be funneled through that ritual. So it's far more important than... Frankly, the literature is in the past, uh, given it credit for being. Now, the other thing is, and you mentioned this in your answer, is especially when they're trying to marry outside of Russia, is the issue of religion. And so what role was did religion play in, in marriage and diplomacy? Yeah, religion is one of those complex problems. And it is everywhere, actually. I mean, if you think about the West, one of the most important obstacles to dynastic marriage, which often reinforces treaty arrangements and peace treaties and alliances in the West, was the Protestant Reformation, because all of a sudden you have you know, half of Europe is now Protestant. You don't want to marry them, or the other way around. They're Catholic. You don't want to marry them. So even in the West, you can see religion becoming a barrier to the traditional role in, in dynasty of using marriages to solidify alliances or to make peace deal. The problem in Russia is that, in Muscovy, is that this society has been orthodox since, putatively since 988. The orthodox rulers of these spaces have had very few choices. They could go to Bulgaria, and they do sometimes. They go to Moldova. They go to the Byzantine sometimes, to the Serbs. But it's a real question, and a changing, evolving question, as to whether you can marry the heterodox, the non-orthodox. And in the 17th century, that becomes actually a real issue. They the confessional lines between East and West actually firm up. They don't loosen, they actually firm up. It becomes it becomes more of a question than in the 16th century. But in the 16th century, you do find um, interfaith marriages, if you like. Now, you don't find interfaith marriages when it comes to the princes. Men marry women who must convert. Princesses, however, different matter. They sometimes do marry men who do not convert. So, for example... Ivan the Terrible's cousin, uh, Staritskaya woman, uh, marries Magnus uh, in 1573, who was a skin of the Danish royal family. And the idea was to make him king of Livonia because Ivan wanted to conquer it and he wasn't able to conquer it. So he thought he would create a puppet state and then marry his kinswoman into the uh, into that rolling new ruling family. That plan was brilliant, but it didn't work out. And the marriage which takes place in Novgorod in 1573, is an interesting moment where uh, Lutheran and Orthodox rituals commingle. And the idea was that Magnus must remain 
Lutheran in order to successfully rule over a Lutheran space like Livonia, but they weren't willing to let their daughter, their kinswoman, uh, the Staritskaya princess, convert to Lutheranism. That just was impossible. So it was an inter- interfaith wedding that, that was allowed. Now, interestingly, if you jump forward to, to Peter the Great's time, he also negotiates a number of uh, diplomatic marriages, really the first time since 16th century, turn of the 16th century, that Russian royals are marrying foreigners. And he allows... Russian princesses to marry foreign dukes and uh, margraves and so on. And the the agreement in the treaties, the, the, the wedding negotiated treaties, are that the sons born of those marriage marriages will be Lutheran, but the the bride and any daughters born of that marriage will remain Orthodox. That doesn't work either, but it was an interesting effort to sort of deal with these confession, confessional divides that even in Peter's time, he had to take note of. One of the things that has plagued Russia repeatedly in, in its history are the laws of succession. I mean, we see this in the dynastic civil wars in the 14th and 15th century. We see the problem coming up after a Peter's law in the 18th century. And we also see problems with succession in the communist period and in present day Russia. Talk about the practices and the laws of succession in Russia and why this continually comes up as a problem. Yeah, I, I, I think that... It's safe to say that Russia has many different customs about succession going all the way back to, to the Muscovite period. And if you go back to, to Rus, Kievan Rus, still more. So the, the thing is, is that you can't really, and it's rare to find this in any society really that's as old as Russia. There is no single way of figuring out who the next king is supposed to be. So if we, if we focus just on the Romanov, say, they come to the throne in 1613. And there is no law of succession that's written down. There's the custom that male primogeniture should work, but it's not rigidly enforced. There are many cases when it's not the firstborn male who becomes the... But lineal succession certainly is uh, enforced uh, even in Muscovite times. In other words, in Kievan times, succession moved from uh, brother to brother to brother, sort of like in Saudi Arabia today. But the Muscovites insisted rather that succession become more vertical. So move from father to son, not necessarily the first son. So when the Romanovs are picked in 1613, it's not because they have any special claim to the throne. In fact, the interesting thing about 1613, that the Muscovites could have pulled out their genealogies, which they had in abundance, and figured out who the next most senior descendant of St. Vladimir was, and then said, that person's the next the next czar. And they didn't do that. What they did instead was they went to the person closest related to the last ruler by marriage, which was Boris Kudinov, who was the brother-in-law of the last czar, which goes back to what we were talking about before. This was a political system built on marriage and kinship, even to the point where it trumped lineal descent when the dynasty died out and there came to be a, the need to figure out who the next person was when there wasn't an heir of the body. So this is, so 1613 really, in, in my mind, to my mind, really uh, illustrates how fundamental that Muscovite political system built on marriage and kinship really was. But if you race forward, of course, Peter Peter the Great comes along and he writes a non-law. It's not really a true law. It's a non-law, basically saying that the ruler can pick whoever he wants to be the next uh, the next ruler, whether that person is related to him or not. And that just completely flubs up the, the 18th century. It's a mess. 
as you as you know, and the the succession bounces from one branch to the to the next of the room. Yeah, there are palace coups, and yeah, there's lots of turmoil within the elite. And it's it's directly the result of a of a bad law of succession. And so when Paul the first comes to the throne, bitter that his his mother has uh, Catherine the Great has kept him off the throne. The first thing he does on his coronation day is he issues a new law of succession, and that law of succession is a modified Salic law. In other words, it's it, it provides for male primogeniture, uh, males preferred over females, unless all the males die out, in which case then you would go to the most senior female dynast and her then male offspring. So you always want to get back to the males, uh, but you are allowed to convey the, the succession through a woman for uh, for the succession for one generation. This law of succession is actually really kind of interesting right now because the Romanovs are wiped out in 1917 and through 1919, and some scurry away, get away, and wind up in the West. And so there's a there's an interesting problem of who would be the heir to the throne today if there was a throne to to occupy, and that's a, an interesting problem. That, that I've written about, I think, you know, and that I really think has to be answered in terms of the law. Because even though the Russian Revolution happened and this law has, of course, been abrogated as a, as a, um, as a state law, it hasn't been abrogated as a uh, family law, right? as a sta- family statute. So it still governs the, the, the family even in exile, uh, which, is, which is an interesting thing. But to, to go back to this, I, I, I w- would say that the succession law of Paul I was interesting in, in many respects, but especially this one way. In it, there is a provision that says that the succession to the Russian throne will be governed by the law itself. So in other words, not only was Paul abrogating Peter's law, he was pointing out that the law itself is above any, any future emperor that the emperor has to follow this law, and, and more or less they do, going forward. And I'm arguing in this, in several articles, and I'm hoping to write about this in the future at some greater length, that this is, in fact, really Russia's first true limitation on autocracy. Everybody talks about the October Manifesto, but if you look at the way fundamental laws work in France or England, or the German states, the very first fundamental laws always, and they don't predate Paul's law by very much, but they always pertain to the succession. It's where constitutionalism begins. And, and so we can talk about Russia really having a limited monarchy long before anybody really does, uh, because it's in such a narrow area, right, of, 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 of their life. And of course, it doesn't affect anybody outside the dynasty. But that's, and, and that's, of course, true and important. But the, the very fact that autocracy has a wall over, over around which or over which it cannot uh, sort of move is an important thing, I think, to point out. And uh, and in fact, I mean, the Decemberist rebellion aside, it provides a very stable hundred years or so of succession. Yeah, and even in that case, the, uh, the right, yeah, the, Constantine abdicated in a perfectly legal way. Right, right. Yeah, it just wasn't registered with the Senate, so nobody knew it. But Constantine's abdication was absolutely, absolutely legal. You know, I have a, I am writing a book about this down the road, and I, I have this long table. It's a good two pages long, single space, ten point font of of times that uh, from Paul the first until Nicholas the second, the law of Paul the first was was violated lots of times. But even the violations are kind of within the world of the law. They still sort of understand that they really shouldn't be doing this or they try to explain it away. It becomes a real 
point of discourse, and, and I would even argue a, a, a space for the development of legal culture. Now, let me ask you about the time of troubles, because this is one of the most tumultuous periods of Russian history, uh, triggered by the exhaustion of the Rurik dynasty with the death of Ivan Grozny and his childless son, Fedor. Uh, talk about the times of troubles and, and how do historians understand it now? And how have they built on the pioneering work of Sergei Platonov's that was published you know, well over 100 years ago? The times of troubles actually are one of those topics in the early modern period that is still attracting a healthy amount of attention. Uh, it's written on a lot, especially by Russians these days, but there are a number of Americans who, who've worked on it and, and Brits who've worked on it too. It's one of those topics that just won't go away because it's so, it's, it's so uh, complex and, and puzzling. Was it a succession for the, uh, a struggle for the succession of the throne? Was it a uh, populist revolt of peasants and Cossacks? Was, was it a, a moment of national identity and striking out against Poles and, and, and non-Orthodox people. It has all of these dimensions, and they're really all in these events. It's not just a historiographical twist. These things really do happen in these 15 years. Between 1598, as you say, with the death of Fyodor Ivanich, and 1613, when, when Michael Romanov becomes, uh, becomes the first Romanov czar. You know, the, the, the whole dialogue on this period is still framed by this incredible book that was written, as you said, by Platonov, whom you mentioned. And that book held sway for two generations. 60 years, nobody really approached the topic of the time of troubles in any truly original way. Until the Soviets came along, a guy named Stanislavski came along and, and started looking at it as a kind of uh, peasant war, a uh, 17th century kind of peasant war, which was, which was fun, I think. It was useful because it put it in the context of larger European crisis of the 17th century. Even, even though it was a sort of a Marxist approach and it had those limitations, it was still kind of a very good, good uh, idea to think of it in more broader terms. These days, we've sort of done full circle. You know, Platonov had argued for these three phases of the of the, of the troubles, the, the dynastic phase, a sort of social phase, and then a national phase. And these days, we sort of have doubled back to thinking of this as largely, a, again, a, you know, a question of dynastic succession, who's going to be the next ruler. And I love that because that's my topic. That's what I study anyway. But, you know, works by, for example, Chester Dunning have really looked at the, the troubles really, again, as, as a political crisis. More, more than anything else. As a civil war, in fact. As a civil war, right? Over politics, over succession specifically. And there are these economic and social dimensions to it, which is always going to be true. But for, for Dunning, and I think he's right, this really has, this ends whenever there's a czar, everybody agrees should be czar. And that's because it's really what the whole crisis was about. So the, the interesting thing, though, about Platonov is, is, you know, how enduring his work was. I've written not long ago about Platonov and in his book, sort of a reappraisal of this book, 110 or 20 years or whatever, after it's first being published. And it's one of those elegant books that has staying power, not only because it has this incredibly, ineluctably appealing structure, but also because it's so gorgeously written. The Russian is so accessible and uh, simple yet elegant. And it, it's sort of the, the last of an era when good writing was as important as the historical analysis. You know, that sort of becomes very much the enemy. It becomes very bourgeois after Bakrovsky and the other sort of takeover in the Soviet establishment. The Times of Troubles are, that name itself gives, it's, 
you know, gives us, is shared by lots of other periods. We sometimes talk of the 90s as at other times of trouble. The 20s, or civil war is a time of troubles. Um, but you'll forgive me if I think that the early 17th century one was the real thing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, now also a, a little over a year ago, Edward Keenan, who was a, a, a mentor of yours, um, who is also a giant in, in Russian historical studies, uh, passed away. And in your obituary of him, you described him as a uniquely and unapologetically independent mind. What were Keenan's contributions and what are their legacy? It's been a year and I still feel his absence. He was to me, uh, really very important. He changed my life. He saved me from other possible futures that I might have had. And he brought me to work with him and uh, study with him. And I, I can't tell you how much I feel indebted and grateful to him as a, as a, as a man. And yes, I, I unabashedly acknowledge my status as a Keenan Cambridge clone, as they say, a part of the Harvard School, as they like uh, derisively say. I read... Keenan's article, Muscovite Political Folkways, shortly after it came out when I was still in college, I think maybe a junior, and fell in love with it. I said, this is, this is what I want to pursue. This is, this is the guy I got to work with. Folkways remains still the most, single most influential piece of historical writing that, that I've ever encountered. Ned was a, was a, was a, was a thinker who was contrary even when he didn't need to be. He looked for alternate answers almost as a mental exercise. It was too easy to agree, even if he did. He wanted to always ask the what if or the yeah, but kind of comment. And in, do in so doing, he was often a little short on being correct. He was sometimes overly willing to challenge. On the other hand, the thing I've come to appreciate about Ned is how much he, he was right on the biggest issues on the big things, if not the details, on the, the larger conceptual problems. For example, the whole idea of, of power being about marriage and family and kinship is, is a Keenan idea that he took from a, a Russian historian named Vysolovsky, who lived in the early 30s, 20s and 30s, and wrote a lot, very little of it published in his lifetime because he wasn't a Marxist. But he, he was unformulated in his ideas, but he had he had this idea that kinship mattered. Keenan read and devoured and loved Vysolovsky, but he added to it a kind of structure, an anthropological structure, and gave that life, gave that a utility that he could then plug into Russian history and then passed it on, passed it on to us. So I think of Ned as being in a sort of chain, you know, a genealogical chain of his own. There's Vysolovsky, there's Ned, and then there are his students. There's Nancy Coleman at, at uh, Stanford. There's uh, uh, Dan Rowland, retired at uh, Kentucky. There's um, Val Kibbelson, who's at Michigan. Uh, there's me and, and, and others. So Ned is one of those people who changed the field. And for all that he wrote, all of it controversial almost to, to to each article. His other major contribution has been his students. He was the most generous uh, advisor I can, uh, I can I could possibly imagine with his ideas, with his time, with the resources of the history department. He needs to be remembered. He, he needs to himself be challenged. It's something I think he would appreciate. People coming along and saying, you know, he was cracked right up the middle. I don't think he'd have a problem with that. He, I don't think he would. But he needs to be remembered. 
So I, I also want to talk to you about some of the other things that you do. In particular, you are an advisor to the the Romanov Imperial House, and you're a member of the Chancellery of the head of the Russian Imperial House. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about that, but I also want to ask you about this recent controversy between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Romanov family over the authenticity of the remains of Tsarevich Alexei and Grand Duchess Maria. What is this controversy all about, and why is it significant? As far as being a member of the Chancellery, that's been true for about five years, although I've been consulting with the Grand Duchess Maria Vladimirovna, the head of, current head of the Imperial House, and for her father for about 25 years, I guess, in various ways. I translate for the webpage, www.imperialhouse.ru. There's an English side to a mirror page that basically is mine. And um, I've done a few other odd jobs for them here and there that involve mostly translation skills and a little bit of writing. That has been a lot of fun, actually, because it dovetails with my interest in succession generally, and particularly the law. So I got connected to the, um, the previous head of the dynasty and the current head of the dynasty by writing on the early Romanovs. I, back in grad school, I thought of that. I was actually going to write some of the trouble. I didn't, but I had read things that were published and got some attention. And one thing led to another. I met some people. And then before I know it, I'm doing some translating. Before I know it, I'm giving a deposition in a legal case. <laughs> yeah. And it just sort of ballooned from that. Grand Duchess is, in my opinion, the lawful head of the dynasty, but there are other people out there who would disagree with me, and that's totally fine. This is a, a topic upon which I think honest people can disagree. I think those people who challenge your position as head of the, of the house think that the law of succession is less important today, and so they base their, their conclusions on some other things. I draw mine exclusively from the, my reading of the texts, and as you might expect, as an historian would do. And so so it's it's a question of what your starting assumptions are. And mine have, have take me, taken me to uh to to the Grand Duchess and uh and I'm you know it's been it's been terrific working for her and I continue to uh to do that even now. Now the Russian Imperial House is extremely active in Russia today, as you suggested, and it's involved in a number of charity works. There is a new Imperial Foundation for Cancer Research which is uh, in Russia today, but also has offices outside in Brussels. Uh, there's a children's oncological hospice that is under the patronage of the Grand Duke, the Grand Duchess's son. There's lots of money being raised for very good works. Um, there's relationships with the uh, Sovereign Military Order of Malta, which is basically a large international charitable organization these days. Um, she is right now, as we speak, in the Crimea making a visit with her son to step foot in Crimea 100 years after Nicholas II made his first visit there. And not first visit there, but uh, some other anniversary there is related with him. Uh, there was a bust of Nicholas II was, that was uh, dedicated, and she was there for that. So uh, she goes to Russia several times a year. She's very involved in uh, charitable activities, cultural work. Um, and, of course, sometimes that leads to uh, involvement in questions that sometimes get noticed by the press. And one of them is, as you asked about, the remains of Tsarevich Alexei and Maria, Grand Duchess Maria. So actually, the, the, the problem is not just those two. Those are the two bodies that were only recently discovered and identified and, and scientists have identified as being Alexei's and Maria's. Uh, years back, of course, the, the rest of the imperial family and their servants were found as well. And, and they went under scientific study and were proclaimed to be authentic by some authorities. Now, the Russian Orthodox Church has not accepted those scientific conclusions, say there are problems with the chain of custody remains. 
that uh, some of the samples were contaminated, that some scholars raised their public statements, some questions that need to be answered. Basically, the Russian Orthodox Church has a series of questions that it would like to answer. It's, it's reluctant at, at the moment to say these are the authentic remains. If you ask me personally, the scientists have, have spoken, and there you have it. But the Grand Duchess has taken her cue from the church. She's unwilling to acknowledge the authenticity of the remains while the church has not yet said that. And the reason why isn't because she's anti-intellectual, anti-scientific. The reason is, is because these, in her mind and the minds of many Orthodox Christians, these are relics, not just bones. And so the church has to have, uh, in her mind, uh, a leading role, if not the leading role, in, in the handling and the authentication and identification of, of these relics, of these rooms. And since that hasn't happened, because there have been sort of irregularities in the chain of custody, the church has sort of been a little bit snubbed out of the process. And as a result, it throws up its shoulders and its hands in the air and says, well, you know, if you want us to declare this, you want us to declare these authentic, then you're going to have to let us ask these questions because these are, these are the questions upon which we'll make that determination. And the Grand Duchess, for her part, is being, you know, you might say a, a good Orthodox Christian and waiting for the church to, to declare what it wants to declare about before making a statement. That was Russell Martin, professor of history at Westminster College, focusing on autocracy, marriage, power, and the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He's the author of A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review on iTunes or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. I've also started a weekly email newsletter, the SRB Weekly Dispatch, which rewinds the Newsweek in Russia. You can subscribe to it at seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! I'm welcome no more